a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Out there, the precariat is growing. Do you consider yourself militant? I consider myself Malcolm. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. What's up, people? Welcome back to another episode of the Precariat Podcast. <laughs> Glad to finally be getting another episode up here to you guys. But it's going to be worth the wait, I promise, because um, I interviewed my stepfather, Jerry, who is a great guy, but is also a Vietnam veteran. And, you know, I really have a lot of respect for people who have been through that experience. And I've known him since I was a kid, but I never really asked him about his experience because it can be kind of a touchy subject and you don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. Uh, but recently I asked him if he would be willing to share his story on the podcast and he said he would uh, gracious, graciously. So thank you for that, Jerry. And you guys are really going to enjoy his story, I promise, right? But before I start the podcast, um, we have our first show sponsor and it is Lexafor, which is an all natural hair and body butter, no chemicals. Um, you can read all the ingredients and know where everything is that's in there. I use it every day on my hair and skin. It's great, great moisturizer because you know, you know, black people we get dry. Y'all know y'all ashy, so uh, give it a try. It's Lexafor if you want to check it out. www.lexafor.com, L-E-X-I-F-O-R.com, uh, and enjoy the show. Thanks. All right, Jerry, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Yes, you're one of the, the few, the proud. Well, I guess that's actually a bad slogan to use for this episode. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but like I was talking about in the intro, I've always been interested in the stories of veterans, right? Because they send us, they being the U.S. government, sends us to wars all over the world for different reasons, some of which, actually most of which are usually... Um, not the not, right reasons. Yeah, not the right reasons. So, um, I, but I always always like to get the experience of somebody who actually has been through it, yeah. and it's such a the Vietnam era is such a iconic era, or I guess maybe more infamous era in the U.S. history. So, uh, just you haven't gone through it. I just kind of wanted to pick your brain about some of it. So, absolutely, we can begin at the beginning. So, how did you find out that you were going to be in the Vietnam War? Uh, I was drafted. Uh, 1969 uh, I was in college uh, I dropped out of college for that reason because I had a brother that was uh, had a speech impediment and they don't take two sons from one family and I was the lucky one I got to go to Vietnam and I went to Vietnam in May of 1969 at 18 years old, and it was my first time experiencing um, being somewhere other than in the South, and when I was drafted, funny enough, my friends and I got together the night before and because I was leaving, and I went down to the uh, induction station, and I have to say I was feeling a little bit 
uh, tipsy. I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> and it was like 6 o'clock in the morning or 7, whatever it was. Don't even know what time it was. And we go down to the station. And in the station where I went in, there were four stations, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Army. Now, I wanted to join the Army. But in my haze, I got in the building, and I mistakenly went into the Marines. Oh, yeah, that's a definitely a mistake. So yeah. as I'm partially asleep, partially tipsy, I finally wake up, and we're taking the pledge, and they're about to say, <laughs> thanks for joining the Marines. And I was like, whoa, wait, wait. I, I don't want the Marines. I want the Army. So they said, uh, you're in the wrong room. This the build, it's right across the, the hallway there. I was like, God, I got to get out of here. So <laughs> I had heard about the Marines. So I didn't want any part of that. So I went into the Army uh, station. And as I go in and hundreds of others were there, uh, mostly uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, Puerto Ricans, and a few white people. And in our line, I had heard when I was in college, hey, when I went down there, I'm thinking, I'm not going to be down there but an hour because I got flat feet. So, so when you go, do you get like a letter? And says, yes, I got a letter that said, welcome. You <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are part of the United States Army. Report to certain, certain base, or, I mean, uh, uh, induction station, and you go in from there. And... My father was a lifer in the army, and he during the '60s it was a thing of, you know, be a man, take it. It's only two years, and you know, go in and you'll be right out. But I was thinking two years at a place that's ten thousand miles away that does not sound like something I'm going to be in charge of. So maybe if I join the army, it'll be less. Okay. So I go into the army. Now, after I take the pledge, we go into this recru recruiting uh, sergeant that says to us, now, you go in like you are, you're going to be an infantryman. If you take another year, you can pick any MOS you wanted, which was any kind of uh, career you wanted. So I'm thinking, OK, I'll take an extra year. Hey, no problem if it keeps me from going to the field. Yeah. So I took the extra year, and it turned out pretty good. So I became a teletype operator, communication specialist at Fort Gordon, Georgia. Never been to Georgia. It's hot as hell and nothing but gnats. <laughs> so I go down there, and <laughs> we go through this uh, initiation, and everything's fine, and the fact that I'd played football in college, I thought, hey, I'm athletic, yeah, no problem, I'll take this physical thing, eh, no big deal. But the thing is, you have to take a 50-pound pack with, a, at the time, you train with a M14. I know you young people don't know what that is. That's a weapon that they used in World War II. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it weighs about 12 pounds or something. Maybe I'm incorrect. But it was a heavy weapon, and you had to carry that, plus your pack and everything else. And I'm like, oh, God, this is not going to work. 
But then I had to drop the pack and I went into an air-conditioned communication center. Hmm. So I thought, hey, this is going to be great if this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Vietnam and be an air conditioner. Yeah. So I figured, <laughs> okay. Vietnam and air conditioner. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it just didn't. No, <laughs> I'm like, like okay, that sounds pretty good. So off I go. I finished the training. Uh, there are some things that happened in between that that were uh, personal, but it, it kind of guided me uh, back to thinking that I can always remember my father saying, be a man. Stand up, you know, don't be a coward, do what you're supposed to do. And that just kept ringing in my head. So I went on with it. And then I went, I had the, uh, uh, actually the pleasure of traveling to California because I went in to Fort Ord, California. It's in the hills of Northern California. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Up in the mountains. You know, it was just as beautiful as you could think. And because I was a a quasi-athlete, I became a squad leader. And the thing was that there, at the time, there were a lot of conscientious objectors, Muslims, uh, hippies, everything. But the only way you were rewarded is that if you, your company or platoon came in first on the exercises or whatever, you know, you could get a reward rather than working in the kitchen cleaning and cooking or whatever. Yeah. So I had the worst platoon ever. <laughs> Nothing but hippies. So we never got anything. Matter <laughs> of fact, at the end of the week, uh, the company that won got all the privileges, but the company that lost, they had this bowling ball that had a big eight on it, and they would roll it over to that company. So you <laughs> knew you had to do all the policing, you had to do all the cooking. Well, not cooking, but you had to, that thing about cutting potatoes, that's yeah. real. You get a knife and you peel potatoes all day. Oh, God. Yeah, all day. That's all day. That's all you do. And then you have to go exercise. So I was with this pitiful platoon, but it was the first time I got to see how there's something called uh, mob mentality. Yeah. When you have someone in the platoon, they would separate all the physically athletic people and they would give you all the hippies to try to make them come up to standard, you know. So you hmm. figured, hey, it's easy. Just do what we're doing. But they seriously didn't want to go. And at the time, I didn't think that, you know, I'm, I'm already in. So, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know, I'm already in. I don't want to get kicked out. Because all they were telling you was like, if you get kicked out, you have no benefits. You can't do anything. So stuck with it. But in our platoon, like I was saying, we had a lot of hippies. So they wanted us to, the hippies that didn't come up to standard, they wanted you to, you know, actually just embarrass them to the point where they would get out or and quit or just, you know, join everybody else. That didn't happen. And thank God, because that was the first time I got to see that you know, if you stand together with people uh, that are like in, in thinking, you can get out of it. Of course, I didn't get out of it. So the next thing I knew <laughs> after my uh, it, being at Fort Ord, uh, I got to go home, which I didn't understand. That they gave me a month to go home, and then you had to come back and report and go to Vietnam. So I figured, hey, if I go home, I ain't coming back. <laughs> so I go home, 
And once again, I meet my father, who is a lifer, and he, once again, I didn't tell him what I had planned because uh, at the time I was thinking about Mexico or Canada, and that, those were two places that uh, were open to you to come. But I didn't speak Spanish, and I didn't speak French, and it was cold in Canada. So I'm like, what am I going to do? I'd, ra- I'd yeah. rather go to war. Yeah, I'd rather go to war. Right? So uh, the next thing I know, uh, after the month was over, I was debating whether I should try to, you know, go to another country. And uh, Did you know anybody who had done that? Yes. I knew a few people that they said they'd done it. <laughs> okay. But like I said, I didn't speak Spanish, so I didn't see how that was going to work. And then I was wondering... How am I ever going to get back? You know, if I'm a deserter, that's what they called us at the time. How was I going to get back? So, and then I'm listening in my head to my dad saying, you know, be a man. So I buckled down, got my equipment and reported to Oakland. That's where we left to go to Vietnam. And when I got to Oakland, I had never seen that many brothers except at a Tennessee State football game. (laughs) And it was great because... You know, you were with your own, and we were having fun and, you know, just kicking it up. And then two days later, the airplanes started arriving. So they started sectioning you off on into which, you know, companies you were in and which MOS or, or, or station you were going to be in, and they separated you. And I had never seen that many airplanes either. So every plane was filled with men you get on on oakland and at the airport they had a sign that said ten thousand miles away is your destination ten thousand miles you can't think of ten thousand miles yeah no how where is ten thousand miles uh no we left oakland went to hawaii all right so I can't, that's why I can't get my name. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't actually go on the airplane that dropped me off in Hawaii. I spent a couple of days in Hawaii. And I was worried that when I got back that something was going to happen to me. And it did. I got back and they put me on an airplane and sent me to Vietnam. You know, so I could have stayed for a month. But I realized <laughs> it and never left at all, maybe. But... I got on the plane, and then we went to Guam. That was the next stop. And I'd never seen that much water in my whole life. If you ever go across the world and you see, really see how much water there is in the world, it took us 24 hours to get there with the stops. And just water, water, water. And I, from Guam, we went to... Cameron Bay, which is in the middle of Vietnam. And what year is this? 1969. So where, so where is the war at this point? Like, is it escalating or? Uh, it was in full bloom. Okay. Because, like I said, there was airplane after airplane coming in and picking up troops and taking them back. So when we got to Cameron Bay, no, I'm sorry, we had to go to Cameron Bay because I was supposed to go to Long Bend. But they'd blown up the airfield, so we couldn't land. Oh, that's a bad omen. <laughs> yeah, so we hear this on the airplane, and it stopped being fun. You know, because when we landed, uh, 
they were like, you're going to have to sit here for a while because they're repairing the airfield. So we're all thinking, what? Repairing where we're going to land? This does not sound good. <laughs> so now you get on, you're on a plane and there's silence. Nobody's saying anything. You're just kind of wondering, what the hell have I gotten into here? You know, you've seen war on TV. You all think it's it all ends in glory and everybody's happy. It's not true. So when we finally were able to go to uh, Long Bend, we land and you see all these troops. When the plane lands, they fuel it and take troops that were already there and bring them back. So when we got off the planes, we had on our fresh green fatigues and the guys that were waiting to get on the airplanes, they were in, their fatigues were brown, nothing like <laughs> ours. And they had this look on their face like, bro, you come to the wrong place. And it was scary because you could smell, uh, we come to find out that they don't burn. I mean, there's no restrooms. So what they do, they burn feces. Uh. It's outdoor toilets, and they burn it. And you can smell that as soon as you get off the plane. And it's 126 degrees. So you're scared, you're hot, and you see these guys saying, bruh, this ain't this is not the right place. And they're on their way back to the States. They're loading up, getting on the planes that you just got off of to go back to the world. And it was just, just scary i've never been that scared except later but um you get off and <laughs> you go to whatever section you were in and like i said i was a, a teletype operator i was supposed to work in a communication center starts fatigues everything you know no sweat just go in do your communicating because i had a secret cl crypto clearance for dealing with material. And uh, I just thought it was going to be just, hey, <laughs> I just go go to the air conditioning building, come back, and that's it. But I had a snag <laughs> because I was not such a good soldier. I had lost my clearance, and I didn't know that. <laughs> so one day I'm sitting in this beautifully air-conditioned communication center, and MPs come into the room, and they're like... Uh, we're looking for private me. <laughs> and they said, come with us. They said, uh, and at the time, when you go, when I left the United States, I was a spe spec four, that's what they call it, a specialist four, which is like an E4. And when you go over across the water, you gain a, another stripe automatically. So I was an E5, so I was a sergeant. Well, for about two months, and I got that paid. But when they came and got me out of the communication center, they sent me to a perimeter guard platoon. Now, you're talking about a come down. I go from an air-conditioned building to out there on the perimeter the same day. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you go over to this platoon, and it's just like on TV. They're in there. It's like something you've never seen in your life. They're like, having fun and drinking and smoking and everything's great and they're telling all these stories and I'm standing there like a country boy that I am, like, oh God, what the <laughs> hell is this? 
And, you know, to myself now, I'm trying, I got this hard exterior, you know. I'm bad, you know, I don't care. You know, so I dropped my starch fatigues and got my weapon and went out on Perimeter Guard. Now, Perimeter Guard was right out there near the edge of where the enemy was, separated by Constantino wire, booby traps, and everything else. And you're in a 12-foot-high tower overlooking everything to see if somebody was coming in. And this is like in the middle of a jungle, basically. It's Well, it was on the base, which was uh, so big. Longbeam was so big that it covered, I don't know how many square, square miles, but it was always on the furthest point is where you went, where the perimeter was. And you had to stay out there all night. I was on the night shift, of course. And <laughs> you stayed out there and you saw these Cobra helicopters firing weapons out there at night, these tracer rounds, and it was beautiful. But then you realize they're really killing people. Hmm. And I'm just a mile or less away from the real action. So uh, on occasion, you would get trips in the wire, and they would just, we would just open up on them or whatever was out there. It usually was a, a, some animal or something that's gotten yeah. caught into the wire. So you really, really didn't get to see any action as far as just being scared, hoping nothing would happen. A month later, they decide that they wanted to move my platoon to a forward position out in the bush. Now understand, I have Vietnam training, but I haven't been out there. So they load us all up, a whole company of soldiers, and we leave and we go out into the bush. Now if you've ever seen dark, you think you've seen dark when you cut off your lights at night, that's not dark. In Vietnam, it was so dark that it, you couldn't believe it. You couldn't see your hands in front of your face sometimes. So they would say, don't wear anything that would give away your position. And I was like, oh, God, how am I going to do this? So, in, you know, in your mind, you're just going through all the scenarios of what's going to happen out here when we get out here. So they load us up. They take us to the airfield. We load up on about seven helicopters, Huey helicopters, and we take off to a forward position out in the bush. We go in, and it's a bright, sunny day. It's helicopters. You got gunners on there. You Stuff you've seen on TV, you know, gunships, and they're all <laughs> sitting there, and here you are, a U.S. soldier. You know, you, you're a badass, you know. Seven helicopters, all you can hear. <laughs> We're going in, man. We go in, but then you realize when you get there, they don't land. They hover. So they hover about six, seven feet off the ground. They dump the equipment. You jump off the skid. That's a long jump. It is. But it's always in elephant grass. I don't know how that always <laughs> happens. Elephant grass is something that it, it's, so, it's high and it's soft. Well, it seems soft anyway. Yeah. But the whole thing was to get on the ground from the clearing and get to the tree line. Now, for that 80, 90 yards, that's the scariest time. Because when you get down, you realize that the helicopters are turning around and going the opposite direction. And that's when you realize, hey, hey this is really life or death. Hmm. So you get your equipment and you head for the tree line. 
So we get to the tree line, we get all the equipment, we get all the weapons, and we spread out. Now, the sun's going down. In the, in the beautiful sunset. And you're thinking, God, this is nice. For a second. And then in the background, you hear, in the background, wherever that was coming from, yeah. I know we're pretty close to it. So what's going to happen now? Now the sun goes down. So we separate. We spread out. We're supposed to be looking for something. Charlie, whoever that <laughs> Just is. Just random Charlie. Yeah, Charlie, VC. <laughs> so you're out there, and now it's really dark. And you're sitting there, and we're waiting for the Vietnamese Arvins, they call them, uh, the, the local soldiers, to show you where we're going to find the enemy. And this is what I couldn't understand. It's like coming into somebody's house at night in the dark and trying to find them. <laughs> you don't know. They know the outlay of the house. You don't. But you're looking for them. And I never could figure that out. That is the craziest thing. Yeah. It, they know where they are. I don't know where they are. And the thing is, you could be shut down by one or two snipers, you know, because they're all over the place. Yeah. So one and the sniper thing, could you, feel like 20. Yes. And the thing was, if you shot at them, they would know where the shot came from. So for me, <laughs> that was like, I'm not shooting at anybody. I don't <laughs> care what happens. But you can't do that. Yeah. And, uh, I was telling uh, uh, my son, who's doing this podcast, that the scariest time in my life was when you look over and your commanding officer is saying, silence. You know, he puts the finger over his lips, which meant quiet, and he pointed that VC were close. And I'm telling you, that is the scariest time that I've ever had in my life, because you know... You know, you don't want to give yourself away, but you think your breathing is giving you away. You know, yeah. it's so quiet and everything is scary. Everything that moves, you want to shoot at. But you know you can't shoot because you don't want to give your position away. And then you wait and you wait and you wait. And finally, they go away. And then you're relieved. But you got to get up and now start walking. So we walked to a point where we were meeting up with Arvin, uh, the local uh, soldiers, and uh, we sat there and uh, waited till daylight. And uh, we marched maybe two or three more miles into the jungle to an, uh, an LZ, a landing zone uh, in a base that was up on a hill. And um, when we got there, I was telling myself, there, there's no way I could go back out there. Uh, I'm... This is not TV. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is real. You know, people are getting killed. And on our way to this LZ, sometimes you would see bodies of soldiers. Well, not our soldiers because they always pick them up, but uh, of Arvins or VC. And when you, you've seen a mangled and smelled a dead body, it changes your whole thinking. You know, you wonder, how could somebody do this to somebody? And keep walking. And that was the crazy thing. You saw this, but you had to look at it and keep going. But in your, to you, it, it's registering in your brain, and you think you've forgotten it, 
but as soon as you close your eyes, you're like, when you had time to sit down and, you know, relax, that's when it all comes back. It's like, God, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. You just saw this person's side just blown out and everything spilled out on the ground and you're, you're smelling this dead body and you got to keep going. It, it's like, how can war is the craziest thing in the world? Because the people who really die are the soldiers, not the yeah. people in the offices. And that's when you wonder, why would I take orders from you? You're not out here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this can't be right. The the next day when we got to the LZ, it, it may have been a couple of days, but when we got back to the LZ, um, I told myself, I can't go back out there. there there's no way. I can go back out there and do this every day, even for three days. How could I do this? I, I can't. I can't go back out there. So I decided that, hey, they're going to have to put me in jail and send me home, dishonorable discharge or something, but I'm not going to die over this. So I <laughs> sat down in the middle of the post with my equipment, my weapon, I sat right down there and said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going back out there. I am not. I don't care what happens. So I'm sitting there, and people are walking by me. It's like, hey, bro, what's up? I'm like, <laughs> nothing. He said, well, why are you sitting out here? I'm like, man, I can't go back out there. He's like, oh, man, everybody goes through this. I'm like, uh, no, I, I can't go back out there. I'm saying, I I just saw myself dying I don't know how many times. I, I can't go back out there. So one of the commanders on the base came over and they said, uh, Private, why are you sitting here? I said, I can't go back out there. I'm not going back out there. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to sit here. He said, you're not going to sit here. He said, I said, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. He said, you want me to go get somebody to get you out of here? I was like, yeah, that's what I want. I want to go back. I, I'm not going back out there. So he said, well, we're not bringing a helicopter in here just to get your ass out of here. <laughs> I said, well, uh, whatever, I'm not going anywhere. He said, well, come on, son. Come on up to the uh, oily room and we'll talk about this. So I get my stuff and we go into the oily room and he's like, looking at my record and he's seeing uh, after he talked to somebody on the radio, uh, what about this guy here? And he said, yeah, he's been to college. He's a football player. And why are you doing this? Your father was in the army. And why are you doing this? You know, what are you a coward? Or I said, you're not going to shame me into going back out there. I'm sorry. I'm not going. So the next day when they, uh, next couple of days, when they brought supplies in, they put me on a, a helicopter and took me back to the rear. And I said to my commanding officer, hey, you can put me in jail, dishonorable discharge, I don't care. But I'm not going back out there to kill anybody. Oh, and one other thing. When we were out there, one night, we hear this loudspeaker going, and it's saying to us, you're a black man trying to kill a brown man for a white man. So how stupid are you? You can't go back. It was a, oh, somebody speaking English. We couldn't believe it. 
They could never find out where it came from because they just shoot rockets. This went on, I come to find out, like every other night they were either dropping leaflets and, you know, they had a... a the Viet Cong were? Or? Yeah. Huh. They had they had leaflet with uh, like old Sambo on it and huh. saying, you can't even eat in a restaurant in your hometown, but you're over here trying to kill me about something you don't even know about. And when you, you realize that... Why am I? Why am I doing this? You know, all the people that I've seen die. Why did they do it? And at the time, you only got—if you died, your parents only got fifteen thousand dollars. Now, is that worth a life? You know, just to, for somebody to say, "Yeah, you have to go and kill somebody for this." I couldn't do it. So I thought, I'm trying to figure out how am I going to explain this to my life of father and my poor mother. <laughs> and I just wrote to them after uh, my commanding officer, oh, and by the way, my commanding officer called my parents and I talked to them on the wireless, whatever the thing was, and uh, my mother was crying and she was wondering why I was going through all this and you're only gonna, you know, it's just, you know, I just want you to be safe. And all I could say was, Mom, I just can't, I can't do it. I don't want you to feel bad for me, but I cannot do it. And my dad said, son, you know, all the time I was telling you I was, you know, be a man and all that. You know, I played baseball when I was in the Army. <laughs> I'm like, what? And, and that gave me relief because that made me feel like, okay, I'm not a coward. You know, I'm not giving up. It's just the right thing to do. And they sent me to Saigon for the remainder of my time, but I couldn't leave the base. So oh. I had to sit there for uh, uh, six months or so. And I worked in the uh, oily room as a secretary. And then I worked in the mail room. And then I became short. And short meant that your time over there was getting shorter. Yeah. And because I had been in country for uh, quite a while, uh, at one point they said you could get an early out if you'd spent more than a year in Vietnam. And, oh, yeah, I, I have to digress a minute. In my, when they sent us out there in the jungle, we, when we landed, If you've ever heard of Agent Orange, Agent Orange is a chemical defoliant. Never heard that word before. So we get there, and it, there was jungle before. They drop Agent Orange. You go back, there's nothing. Nothing but dirt. No bugs, no ants, no nothing. And they said, and it smells sweet, like perfume almost. Hmm. And you go out there and you're like, what the hell happened here? That was trees and everything here. And they dropped that defoliant and there's nothing. And that's where they would build a landing zone. So wherever you were, you were breathing this in all the time. Oh. Yeah. So wherever they cleared, that's how they cleared it. The, the bulldozers only came in after the defoliant was laid. That's why it was so easy. 
and that's how they could build up a, a LZ quick. So that's what that was. I think I had heard this is a long time ago, maybe in the '90s, about veterans having problems with like Agent Orange, like uh, oh yeah, like respiratory issues. respiratory issues, cancers and, and all kinds of cancers. And when I got back, I was fearful of having children because I didn't know what the effects were from the, and you didn't know about it until, you know, things start happening to you. And luckily for me, I knock on wood, uh, I wasn't physically hurt, but mentally I could not fathom. It took me a long time to realize what I had done. And that defoliant gives you heart disease, diabetes, kidney disease, and alike. So, oh, neurological functions are, are, are deteriorating all the time. I have friends right now that have so many physical issues that it, it's unbelievable. And you find out that their children, whatever, you know, children didn't usually have the, all these respiratory problems. And the kids from veterans, they wind up with them. But you think it's something else. And the government denied that Agent Orange was even uh, anything that would harm you. Yeah. So you've been over there for a whole year, and you've been breathing this in all these years. And then it took, what, 20 years for them to even say that it was uh, bad for you. Yes, and that's, that's, that's crazy. And then if you think about it, you know, whatever when they drop that stuff, whatever's living down there, which I'm sure included some people, you it's know, gone. You know, so that's that's nuts. Yeah, and it's 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 so bad that, like I'm telling you, when you don't see ants, <laughs> roaches, something's wrong. Yeah, and it, it, that was just scary. It was so scary that, you know, at the time, you know, being 18, I, I'm thinking. God, how much time do I have to live? So I said, I'm not going to die over here. So you can do whatever you want. I, I'm not going to stay. So like I said, they sent me to Saigon, and I did my time out, and <laughs> I was so scared that I never left the base. Because uh, before, I would go down into Saigon, and Saigon was like a raggedy New Orleans, if you can imagine that, if you've ever been to New Orleans. Yeah. That's the only place I can compare it to because it was 24 hours a day, always partying, whatever. So I stayed on the base and I was scared because I, you always figured that if anything happened to you, it would be when you were a short time. Yeah. So it, it made me become a recluse and I never left the base for anything. I don't care what. So... Uh, there are some things that I'm forgetting here, but <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, uh, I, I've shot at people and people have shot at me and I don't know if I killed anyone. And if I had, I hope the spirits forgive me. But if one thing you learn from what I'm telling you is our children don't need to go to any war. War is probably the worst thing that can happen to people. We have so many of the people that are your age that are in Afghanistan and Iran, and these are issues that we didn't even deal with. At least we could hide in the jungle. 
in these places where our soldiers go now, you go door to door looking for people. How crazy is that? Door to door. Then you get on a highway that they know, and you transporting all your equipment, weapons. So what do you think they're going to do? Put bombs on them. Yeah. And then you're trying to be friendly to these very people that you're tearing up their whole country, and they're acting like they like you. They don't like you. You yeah, ruined their yeah, because yeah, you're scared. They're scared, you know. So there, it's no win. There, there's a no win, you know. Uh, uh, I've got to know a lot of Vietnamese villagers, and these are the nicest people, and they don't want war, because all they're doing is tearing up the very land that they're trying to till. You know, they live on the land. They yeah. get everything from the land, and you're destroying it. So how do you think I'm gonna be your friend? And uh, I think the psychological effects of war was when I got back, I was so paranoid that I wouldn't go out. I didn't have any friends, didn't want any friends because I didn't trust anybody that wasn't a Vietnam veteran, hmm. which is crazy, you know, Yeah. because we were crazy too, so <laughs> all I need to do. Uh, but that uh, they had a lot of programs where they wanted you to talk to veterans that was, were in war and combat. But I, I just couldn't see sitting around, you know, talking about these issues. But it's what I should have done. Because when I got back, nobody really wanted to talk to me about it. My family, my friends, they all wanted to, uh, don't say anything to him. He, <laughs> you know he's in Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> so they gave you that stigma of, God, that dude's crazy. Hey, don't mess with him. I wasn't, I just didn't see how I could get it out of my system. And talking to other vets probably was was the best way. But I just didn't feel like I wanted to hear more stories about the very same things that I've seen. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so. I can see that. I remember uh, my sister, you know, she works at the VA, a psychologist mm-hmm. at the VA. And this is probably, this is like around the time she first started. So probably the first couple of years she was there. Mm-hmm. So this is probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. And she, I remember she called me and she was like, because uh, she, she used to counsel these veterans. So I guess they would tell her story. their story or part yeah. of their story. story. And she, she, she had called me once and she was like, um, they were so young. So at this time, I was probably in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And she was like, they were so young. She was like, they reminded me of you. Um, and so she was saying that while whoever this guy was that was talking, she was like, he, she reminded, he had been through so much, mm-hmm. but he was so young, you know? And yeah. she was like, you remind me, or I don't know if she told him that, but she told me that he reminded me, her of, of me. Of me. Yeah. At the and, same stage. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you think about a younger sibling, you think of them as being sort of a kid kind of a thing. Yeah. But this person was the same age as this kid. Has has gone through all these. Yeah, things. he's been through a lifetime worth of trauma. Yeah. Um, so that's I remember that always that always stuck with me when she when she when she had told me that. So. Well, we always always parallel. Well, I did at least. I parallel my life with. If I hadn't been to Vietnam and if it hadn't affected me, what would I have done? But now I realize that the. One of the best things that I got from Vietnam is, and I hate this word, camaraderie, but it's a good word 
because that's exactly what we had. You know, the only person you could count on is the person that's with you. The people, I should say, that are with you. And you all have the same purpose. But the purpose is to kill somebody. Yeah. And that's when you realize, God, how am I ever going to be forgiven for this? I mean, whatever the reason, you still kill somebody. So how do you live with that? And that's why a lot of us can't really come to the realization or wake up to the fact that you, you can say, hey, it was my life or your life, but still, you, people out there that kill people today, I don't see how you can just kill somebody for a cigarette or for $20 or for $15 and you blow somebody's brains out and you're okay and you go away and then you come back to your house and go have a Coca-Cola. You know, how do you do that? <laughs> and you could, it was the same thing. How could you... For us, it was like seeing all these, these bodies and dead people and a guy you just saw this morning and in the afternoon, you don't see them. You're like, well, where, where's Robbie? Uh, man, he got it. He bought it. Like, where? I just saw him today. Like, no, he bought it. Bro. They were on that tank and <laughs> they blew that up. Yeah, that's crazy. It's just, uh, it's such a war just in general. It's such a a strange, strange uh, perversion of humanity. You know, that there's is. there's one thing of, I guess, fighting to keep whatever it is you have or whatever like that. But it's it's kind of interesting that humanity is in a place where people who you don't know and you've never met right. have the ability to send you off somewhere to fight other people you don't know and have and never, met. never met. And the people on the other side are in the same position, That's essentially. Right. Right. And you're fighting there before them. Yes. You know, which is the strangest thing ever, because there's no other arena in human life where that happens. Right. Yes. Where, you know, maybe if you're in a gang or something there, but at least then they're, you know, you're, you're trying to make a living or something like I don't know. But yeah. but for someone who you've never and in, in that instance, you actually know people who are trying to make right. you go kill somebody. But. For someone sitting in the office in D.C. or wherever, or, or Hanoi, yeah. and tell young people that they have to go and fight this war for some beef that they have. Yeah. The beef is not between the people. Yeah, it's, it's between, between the people at the top who have some the offices. weird agenda. That's you know? right. So, but I always find it interesting, like the, because there's different kinds of vets, right? So you have these like special forces guys who always, I'm not gonna say always, the ones I've heard talk about their experience they don't uh they seem to have a different view of it yeah. to almost as if they're yeah. crusaders kind yeah, of a thing I'm for that i'm for killing uh, we had guys that would bring their own weapons over oh. like their own <laughs> rifles and handguns and and things like that that they hunted squirrels in tennessee or <laughs> whatever now i'm gonna kill some gooks you know like man please yeah get away from me you know i don't, I don't want to be part of that and then you would have officers that came from uh officers school and they give send them to veterans who've already been out in the jungle and they're gonna tell you what to do and i must tell you they didn't last long <laughs> because i'm not taking orders from somebody you're gonna like you're just saying you're gonna tell me to go over here where there are people who are trying to kill me, 
and I don't know they're there. I know they're there, but I'm not sure if they're there, but I'm going anyway because you said so. And I got to tell you, we, we didn't operate like that because the guys that were out there knew what was going on. And like I said, that was the probably the best and worst part of it yeah. because these were the guys that you knew. And then when something happened to them, it, you had to have this exterior like it didn't bother you. I think that's the worst part. You keep so much violence in you that you had and seen that you don't relate it to anybody. And I have to say, the the person that I'm uh, with now, my wife, has really, she was one of the reasons that I survived today because she's really kept me uh, talking about it. Now, I'm still not over it, and uh, the next landmark for me is I'll be 70-some years old in a few years. So it's been a long time, Yeah. and this is still with me. So From when you were 18, 19, Yeah, 20. so what about the, the guys that are over there now? And they're coming, they're coming back to this world that we're living in over here now, and they're getting no help at all. Well, not only do they get no help, at least in the Vietnam era— uh, and and wars previous to that, the country was oriented towards that. Yeah, or maybe less so with Vietnam, but they come back here and it's like nothing is even going on over there. Yeah. Like nobody talks about it. That's Not, right. At least nobody you know early in the Iraq thing, everybody was talking. But now they're still over there. Yeah. Just nobody talks about it. And these guys are going three and four times. Yeah, I can't. I couldn't imagine that. going yeah. to Vietnam two or three times. How could you survive that? Yeah, you couldn't. So. Uh, what I want to maybe end in saying is it was an experience that I can't get away from and I don't try to get away from that I'm finally facing the the things that I've seen that I haven't talked about and the the things that really kind of keep me sweating right now is just the experience of fright. There's nothing like fright. When you're afraid and you have to defend yourself, you can think of all the reasons why I should harm somebody else. But the reality is, I shouldn't even be here. Yeah. Why am I here? And then you come back and how do you transition from killing people to coming back and going to college? <laughs> you know, or going to work. Yeah. That's How can a hard you go term. to work and then somebody's hollering at you and you're thinking, ah, you look like a big cog. <laughs> it, it, it's not that simple, but it is. I mean, something, sometimes things trigger you. I know I can't have my back to a door. <laughs> but seriously, I, when I came back, I couldn't put my back to a door. I had to have somewhere where I knew nobody was going to creep up on me and I had to see everything in front of me. I would scan, if we went to a restaurant right now, I scan the restaurant without anybody knowing. I'm looking at everybody. I'm checking everything out to see if it's safe for me and my wife or wherever I'm with. They don't know it, but it's automatic. It's automatic. I've done it so many times that it's, uh, I used to, be 
kind of, you know, not afraid, but uh, wary of that kind of thing. But now I realize this is something that's in me now. I, it's too hard to get out. And yeah. so I just deal with it. Hmm. Well, I appreciate you sharing your experience. I am. I think yeah. I lost about 10 pounds over here <laughs> <laughs> from sweating and reliving uh, what had happened. No, but you're a great storyteller, though. Oh, thank you. I mean, uh, I, mean I, I had a <clears throat> bunch of questions I was thinking of, but, I mean, you were just rolling along there. But, I mean, like you set the stage and sort of, had, you know, make the picture in yeah. somebody's head. So, yeah. so to say uh, you don't talk about it that much. I mean, well, I'm really surprised it. that I even came out and said these things. Hmm. because uh, like I'm sitting here right now and I'm sweating because I, I'm reliving that on the inside of the actual things that I, I did see. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm an American. I was born here. You know, I served my country. I did everything that you're supposed to do. But when you realize that People judge you for your skin color, and you think anywhere else in the world, uh, you're just another human being. Yeah. But you come here, and as soon as I walk in the room, oh, a black guy. Hell, I know I'm black, so why are you worried about that? Yeah. I have no ill will for you. But if you, that part of Vietnam that's in you to retaliate, that's the part you're always trying to suppress. Yeah. Always. Huh. So you always want to avoid any kind of conflict at all because you don't know when it or if it would trigger you to try to defend yourself. Nobody's going to ever mess with anybody in my family if I'm around because I'm ready to really I'm ready to sacrifice for them. And uh, I'll do it in a, in a heartbeat. So all the people that I love, they can rest assured that I would never harm them, but anybody decided to harm them, I would. Huh. I would have no problem with that. Yeah. And that's what scares you. Even at this late stage in life, you still think, God, I could just go off in a second. Do you think you kind of see sort of the potential, the negative potential side of humanity, and you just know that that could come out if in the right or wrong situation? Yes. Yes, and that's what's kind of scary. Hmm. That you still have that bit of you that is raw, clear, have no problem with doing something if it's going to protect who I love and who I care about. You have no problem with that. But that's a feeling that you never want to have. That's a feeling that no one should ever have to have. Uh, you know, you, you see how fragile life, the body is, when you see it blown apart. And you wonder, that guy that just was blown up, he had a life. He may have had family. He had a mother. He had a father. But you have to keep on going. And that's what really stays with you, you know, the, the harm that war does. Yeah. I mean, to everyone. And it's been like this since uh, this country's been in, been in service, you know, from the time immemorial, you fighting. If we could ever get over this idea of fighting, 
instead of negotiating. I don't understand how you can come to the point of going to war to, with somebody when you could talk to them. Yeah. You can't tell people how to run their own country. Nor should you. It's like telling right. somebody how to run their right. house. Right, and because you'll brag about nobody tells an American what to do. You're not going to tell me how to live. But you do it, you project that all over the world. Yeah. Because of power. I, I think one day, I don't know when this day will be or if I'll be around to see it. Or if any, maybe it won't ever come. But I think at some point, um, people are going to wake up. And I'm, well, people, I mean just regular folks, right. are going to wake up to the fact that um, the people who are sending you these places, the people who you say are your government, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about the you know regular people who are working in government yeah. jobs. I'm talking about the people who are controlling it. Make those decisions. The people who make the ultimate decisions. Yeah. They don't have your best interests at heart. They, they never, they never did, and they, and they never, never will. will. And at some point, and I think with the internet and everything being hacked, and more and more stuff is starting to come out in the public now for those interested to see it about how decisions are really made. Right when you talk about the the Pentagon Papers, the Panama Papers, the stuff Snowden leaked, um, all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff is starting to finally come out. To what I think we always knew, like I always tell people, like when the Snowden stuff come out came out, I was like, well, black people always sort of assumed we were being surveilled yeah. because <laughs> they saw it happen to Martin Luther King and yeah, Malcolm X and all these guys, yeah. and so we just always assumed that that was the case. That's how they broke, broke the Panthers up, right? The FBI right. Uh, had that whole program to infiltrate that and had all that stuff tapped, and so I think black people always kind of knew it, but everybody else didn't think that they were also going to be uh, put in that same box. Whereas right. they don't look at, you know, in a way, at the upper levels of the government, when you're talking about the intelligence agencies and whatever the hell is running Washington, which I don't even know is behind it because, and I say that because the decisions stay the same regardless of who's in office, right. which tells me that those people aren't the ones. Maybe they, they might create the style of which is implemented picture yeah and some some are better custodians than others but it stays the same same. it stays the same bush leaves office everybody's whining about the war obama comes in saying we're going to shut down the wars we're going to close guantanamo we're going to stop torturing people we're going to stop surveilling people all of it all it's done is escalated so that tells you and trump i I just throw him out i don't even know what's going on with him but but the the point remains, it doesn't matter who's in the office or offices, the decisions continue to be the same. And so if you saw that in any other context, in a business, in a change. household, in a uh, you know relationship you have with friends, where the same things keep happening, um, regardless of who is there. That's right. You know, if you had a boss at a job and something, the conditions are bad, everybody's whining about it. And they bring in a new boss. And it's because the conditions, not only do they not change, they get worse. Yes. And they bring in another boss, same thing. Another boss, same. Eventually you say, okay, the guy who they put here is not actually running the yeah. show. Whoever brought him, whoever sent him to us, that's the ones that are behind all, all yeah. the, the, the bad stuff. And I always wonder about it, though, because in a way, um, and I always say that our democracy is a little bit... so. It's an illusion in a lot of ways 
because if you had a real democracy, then you choose the people who That's are, right. you choose That's the people. That's not how we do it. No, we are presented with some options. In the beginning, we're told who are the front runners, right? Yeah. Generally, there's seven, eight people on each side, yeah. and they'll tell us, you know, the, these five, we don't even, you know, they're just filler, basically. These two are the real, are the real contenders mm-hmm. on this side. These two are the real contenders on that side. And people vote accordingly. Yeah. Well, who put these people on the, yeah. on the ballot? Who Whose decision was that? that? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and then, and then when we look at the stuff that came out about Clinton with the whole DNC thing, mm-hmm. how she was running the DNC and rigged it against Bernie and all that, all that jazz. Yeah. It's like, well, and they've been, it's been their wet dream to have her in office forever, right? So, so it, it makes you feel like, well, there's a machine here, and I don't know who's running it, and I'm not trying to bring up any conspiracy stuff. I'm just reading the tea leaves and seeing the consistency of the policies, um, regardless of who's coming in. And I'm thinking, well, both of these people seem to be on the same side. Right. If the policies remain the same, regardless of which way you vote, now the style is different. Yeah, how the, they give it to the you. The style is very yeah. different, um, but the result is the same. The result is people going around getting blown up, spending yeah. billions and billions of dollars on military, and they can't find money for nothing else. You know, and so like I like I was saying, uh, I said on a previous podcast, they all the bickering they do, they bicker, they can't, they they can only pass anything with fifty votes or fifty one votes, yeah, barely get any, any anything across. But when but when the latest military spending oh, increase came across, hey, they it. voted ninety one to nine yeah, to it. increase military spending seven by seven hundred fifty billion. Get it? And so and that's. Bam, there's no debate about that. There's right. no rankling. But you rankling. can't pay a teacher a decent salary. Exactly. And so when you're spending upwards of $2 trillion, we don't even know how much they actually spend. Yeah, because there's we the, don't even know if that's true. There's the budget. There's the Then there's the Pentagon budget, right. all the intelligence agencies, and then there's a black budget. You know, Where does that go? Yeah, and, yeah. and I can only guess that the black budget is going to be bigger than the... <laughs> it ain't for black people. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish there was that kind of budget in there, but... So, so, so on certain things they can get together on, right? Yes. And all, and it's all. And I always say when Democrats and Republicans get together, you know you're in trouble, yes. right? You know something bad's coming down the pike because they don't agree on anything, except the really uh, egregious stuff, which is usually something to do with keeping our little empire going. So. Well, I think that's so true because even if you get rid of Trump, what's going to follow? Pence. That's not that's not a good that's situation. A worse yeah, that's not a good situation. Yeah, because he reminds me of a child molester. I would. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wouldn't put that past him. <laughs> he's always in the background. Yeah. Creepy. He's like that creepy guy. Yeah, you he, say, hey, don't go over there. Don't go over there. Yeah, yeah he's ultra religious, anti-gay, anti. Yeah. You know, whenever they super anti-gay, they hey yeah. So, yeah. So it, it's it's just one of those things that when I look at it. I just I try to filter out what I hear people say and then look at the facts and then think, well, if I were coming at this from no perspective at all, just outsider, never been to planet Earth, and I come and look at this, this is the determination I would come up, come up with. Yeah, this is, say, none of you there? are in control and yeah. everything you think of, and less so on the local levels because local politicians can be held accountable, right? right. As we know in Louisiana where most of our politicians end their career in jail. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? But at the end of the day, at least he was held accountable. Yeah. When you get to the national <laughs> level, yeah. you can commit all kinds of crimes, atrocities, right. do whatever. And George Bush is sitting right up there in Highland Park right now, you know, just relaxing and yeah. you know, he'll Got go his to library open. Yeah, so so that's the reward you get uh, on on the national level, and I've all I've been starting to think, and I'd like to get your opinion on it, is that, and this is on a more philosophical political level. I, I think there's a certain point. There may be a certain point when you think about humans. So you talked about the camaraderie you had with the guys you were over there with, yeah. which, on the side note. Uh, especially guys, guys can make really f- strong friendships relatively quickly, especially yes. if you're in a condensed situation where you spend a lot of time together Absolutely. Um, in a short period of time. And so it is a hell of a thing to think of somebody then getting killed. I think of like teammates I had on different teams in the past yeah. and you build this bond and then all of a sudden, oh, he's They're just, yeah. not only is he gone, but I mean, if my teammate dies, the whole team would probably cry about it. And yeah. be, But as a soldier, yeah, you, you can't, you just gotta move on, you gotta basically. Put it in and just keep on going and try to kill somebody else, or kill somebody in retaliation for that. And at, for a while, I had an animosity toward the Vietnamese, especially when I got back, because when I got back, Vietnamese started filtering back here, but they've been coming here forever. Yeah, I didn't know that, you know. But you never see them. But when you run into one, you think. Well, at least I think, no, God, don't I know you? (laughs) (laughs) I've seen your head before. (laughs) Uh, Is that my daughter over there? I don't know. But uh, I think what's really going to have to happen is that soldiers that are, and people, just regular people, they have to come together and finally realize what kind of power you have. But it's only in a, as a collective uh, and as an individual. You have to start somewhere. And that's why I'm glad I chose to do this podcast because, you know, when you're trying to get the word out about humanity, I, I think that's the best thing you can do because if you don't have humanity for somebody, what good are you here? Yeah. You know, if I can't meet you on a level that's, hey, I have no prejudice against you. I just met you. You're just another human being. But we go so far with all these TV ideas about what people are like and what they know and what they do. You, it never happens. But when you're in, like you said, when you're in that group of people that you think alike and you want to do something, then I, I think this is one of the greatest outlets that you can have. That's what I like about this time in life where you can do exactly what you're doing. And I'm not kissing your butt or anything, but I'm, I'm really glad that I chose to do this. Oh, I because I that. really feel relieved. I do. And my wife is looking at me right now <laughs> and saying, you lost 10 pounds sweating. <laughs> no, I, I definitely appreciate it. But yeah. like what I was... What I was getting at with that comment about camaraderie, though, is because um, that's the sort of natural human state, right? Yes. To be in s- relatively small groups of people who you're very close with because you spend all your time together and your survival, although not <laughs> traditionally not 
you know, survival in that way. But right. but still, your survival is dependent yeah. on each other. Absolutely. You know, that we got to find food together. We got to protect ourselves from the elements together, Absolutely. all that. So that's the natural human state, yeah. which is why I think so many soldiers, that's one consistent thing you hear from them in terms of the positives, is that they miss the camaraderie, they miss that feeling, but that's a natural human feeling, right? To be a part of a group, yeah. right? And more or less everybody's equal, right? Yeah. Um, even even though that is stratified by rank, you know, when it's just guys together, they realize it's yeah, just guys. That's what breaks the barrier, the, the barrier of race, time, everything. When you see that, hey, we're here together, like you said, trying to survive. And your survival depends on mine, and mine depends on you. So we do it collectively. And I, I think that's what we really have gotten away from in our individual achievements. You know, when, the thing is, once you get to a point where you think you've made it, you haven't made it because there are other people that are struggling. You know, I'd say you can enjoy yourself, but I think you have to help somebody else. My wife always says, "Each one, teach one, or I, I, each one serve." Yeah, you have to be able to. I think that's where you get the greatest feeling is helping somebody. Yeah, I once heard somebody say that um, that we have to redefine what a millionaire is. Yeah, and from having a million dollars to being somebody who's helped a million people. That's right. You know, that's a great point. That, you know? that is a great point. But. Like what I was getting at, though, when I was saying the political philosophy on it was just that there's a certain level, I think, that you get to where you can't have a centralized government, right? When you have a country this big, nobody can put their hands on you. Nobody can touch you. Like if you're mayor of a city, people are going to see you regardless of what you do and you think you're so above everybody. You live in a city. And we know where to find you. That's right. <laughs> and, and that's why you see local politicians end up in jail. Yeah, ask Ray Moore. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but when you get to a national level and you've got these people who are calling the shots, and when you get to a point where, you, where someone is entrusted with so much power, how can they possibly, how can you possibly expect them not to abuse it? Yeah. You know, in one way or the other, right? Um, and in ways that it's going to be self-perpetuating, right? So... You know, whoever has the power, that power is only going to snowball, right? And so I'm starting to think that the only way you can really get out of this is to disempower national governments. Not saying that you shouldn't have a national government, but that a national government's government's mission should be much more narrow, like providing basic things for citizens, education, health care. Yeah, different types of things that you... Are you talking about states' rights, bro? No, no, no. I mean, that's where that's where the GOP would go with it. <laughs> but I'm not talking about from their perspective, because with, with their their take on it is they like to send it back to states because state governments are even easier to control than national governments, mm-hmm. right? Less people to buy off. I'm not thinking of it from that perspective. I just think that when you give somebody so much power that they've got all this money, they got trillions of dollars, and they can afford to buy supercomputers and suck up all the data. They can read all your emails, listen to all your phone calls. Not only that, your cell phones have microphones in them. And, yeah, and, and yeah, from what we know from Snowden, they can listen on them. Right. They can listen on your smart TVs. This whole Internet of Things thing that we have going on where your yeah. thermostat is hooked up to the Internet and your oven and your refrigerator yeah, is hooked up. All that 
All those devices can listen. All those devices can track you in your phone. The GPS, it's, it, it records everywhere you've been, all the points. It knows the points that you go most often okay. to the point where now, like if I turn on my phone in the morning, the, the map is already set to my job. Because well, it knows my patterns, right? Well, my wife and I were talking about that because we took this, a trip and uh, daughter was monitoring us on, on our phone. <laughs> yeah, she does do she, that. She had a, what do you call it? Uh, it's a, tracking device. Uh, yeah, yeah find, device. friend finder or something like that. She would call us and say, why did y'all turn around? I'm like, how did you know we turned around? <laughs> he says, I'm tracking you. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And, and I don't think about it because most people will say, You know, well, I'm not doing anything, so why should I care? But it's it's not about you or yeah. me, right? Yeah. Because if you read history, you see what happened to the the Huey Newtons, the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm right. Xs, the people who Those are going to stand up for you when yeah. when 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 the chips are down. The people who because it's it's only going to be a small percentage of people. Most people, you know, they just they're not actually a part of history in that way. But there's always going to be a small group that stands up and is willing to fight for you on your behalf, but you're disempowering them when you allow something like that to happen, right? right. Because it's not about me. Yeah. I'm not doing anything. Yeah, of I'm course not, I'm not doing yeah, anything. But, but the next Martin Luther King, when he tries to stand up, he'll get cut down. shut him down. Yeah, and they can come down even faster than they did the last one because they can track him everywhere. But, but that's my point. So you have these group of people who have all this concentrated power and it's it's a layup. If you were, if you were thinking this up, just you know, writing out how to have a gov- build a government, yeah, you think, well, if we give these people all the money, all the resources, and they don't have to tell anybody about it by law, they can just say it's top secret. Uh, what, is, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. They're going to siphon the money off yeah, in all kinds of different ways. That? You know, and, and so it's 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 to the point where either you have to have extreme accountability. Or you have to take away the power because it's a machine that you've lost control of, mm-hmm. right? It's put in place to provide services for you and other citizens, but you've lost complete control. If you had a machine that you were using to do whatever, if Ford has a machine that you're using to build cars, right. and it just starts building what it wants to build, yeah. and they have no way to stop it, they have to they would have to just pull a plug, just shut it down because we can't control it anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the way I look at this government. There was a study at Princeton where these two uh, scientists did this study, and they found out that voting has almost no uh, bears almost no influence on policy, mm-hmm. which we can see with this tax bill, right? 
which we can mm-hmm. see with uh, with the healthcare bill, yeah. right? Uh, which we can see with all kinds of uh, drug drug stuff, right? Seventy percent of people want marijuana legal, not even close, not even close, right? Maybe in California, if Trump doesn't mess that up, yeah. right? So you have this situation where you've got all these different things where the people want one thing, and it's clear the polling shows what the people yeah. want. Mm-hmm. They want they want single payer health care. The polls over sixty percent. Correct. But they can't get it. They can't even get close. They can't even get it mentioned. Right. Right. So who's stopping that? And who are you working for? And of course, when you look at the donors and and how they actually get that money, of course, you would never set up a system where people can pay for influence. Right. If you were starting from scratch. But that's what we have. And so either you have to have accountability or you have to take away some of that power. You can't have no accountability and they have maximum power. Yeah. Right. It's kind of a dilemma because... You, you would think that the power restriction is the way to go. But if you don't have them accountable, then you still have the power. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say, uh, my wife always says that just because I'm paranoid don't mean they ain't after me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, take that into account. Because, uh, like you said, I'm not doing it, but... There are people who live to do this stuff. Yeah, because look, like if you look at what they're doing to Black Lives Matter, they're trying to turn into a t- yeah, terrorist organization. Right, they t- turn it into something that's not even, you know, exactly what it even started out to be. So, and and immediately after they began to gain a, even a little bit of traction, they immediately started demonizing them, saying that they were a hate group yeah. and all this other stuff, which was the same thing we saw with the Panthers, right? So they're still yeah. sitting in jail, some of them. So, uh. It's just one of those things where, at some point, because we can't keep going the way we're going. No, because uh, there's an end to this. There's def- there's a definite end to it. And it looks like it's coming sooner than we think. It, it has that feeling. I don't know yeah, if that's... I hope that's, not. Yeah. You know, I just hope uh, soon that we wake up and take it back, or if we ever had it, or at least come back to the, the center. Come back to center at least. And we start over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, America needs a real, uh, like a big reset button. Yeah, they need a clean out of everything that's bad here. I, and I think about like how different it could have been if you had a different group. Like, for instance, you at the end of World War II, the only country left standing at that point was the U.S. And it's just because we were so far away from everybody else. Europe's destroyed. Japan is destroyed. That's right. China's Russia going too. in their cubbyhole. Yeah. Russia's lost with... 27 million people, something crazy like that in World War II. Yeah. So everybody's decimated. And you could have, that that was a point where you could have said, all right, we took it too far. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like we, almost, we yeah. literally almost destroyed the world. Yeah. And they did the exact opposite. America saw the, the, the opportunity to put my their foot on the throat of the world. Yeah. And it's been there ever since. Yeah. And they developed these even more powerful weapons. I was watching this thing last night. It was talking about the power that, well, one, that they didn't have to drop the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They already knew the war was over. But they did it anyway because they had spent so much power. money. Yeah, yeah hey, they, they spent show on you it. what we can do to you. And, um, and now they have bombs that are 100,000 times yeah. more powerful than that. Yeah, what and is those, that? those are bombs that killed 250,000 yeah. people apiece. <laughs> what is that bomb they had? They just had a, the mother bomb or something that was oh, the like. Moab? A, yeah, like, a, what is it? A. 15,000 pound bomb or something that just wipes out 
whatever's that anyway. Yeah. You know, just think if they'd had that in World War Two, there would be nothing here, like yeah, you said. They wouldn't have. They wouldn't yeah. have. Now we've really been on the island then. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So so it's a, it's an interesting situation, and I don't know. I don't have no answers. I don't know how to get out of it. Uh, I just know it's not necessarily going in the best direction, and I don't know. Um, who knows with Trump? I mean, he's so unpredictable. I don't know what he's. Yeah. Well, Trump worries, but the people behind him worry me more than him. I mean, I know he's kind of the head of the snake, but that body of the snake. See, I think the really body of the snake in Washington actually runs the show. That's right. That's the, what's killing us. They deregulate. They're gonna deregulate America into the ground. Oh, they've already started, and yeah. it's it's uh like a lot. Of, they rolled back essentially all the bank regulations that they had been having and now the companies come in and pill for the whole country yeah yeah you would think that don't you have enough don't you have enough just to give back but it seems like we have this thing where we have to have it all and you have nothing which is crazy you know yeah there was a i think it was i can't remember which who it was it was either uh i think it was like ho chi Minh or some someone like that he was like the capitalists only know one word more more Oh, that's a good one. You know? And so... Well, once again, I'm so glad that you asked me to do this. I appreciate you doing it. I know, you know... Yes. You had to talk about a lot of personal stuff, so... Mm. Uh, there's some other stuff I could tell you, maybe on another podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> some secrets. <laughs> All right, well, I appreciate you. Oh, my Thanks pleasure. a lot. Yeah, my and I don't want any of you old soldiers calling in and telling him about you're a coward and you're, Let me tell you're a you communist and all that. I know one thing, I'll come to your house. Okay? <laughs> Seriously, I will. <laughs> but thank you so much. All right, well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right.